Welcome to Inside the Rope, the podcast where we speak to the leading minds in wealth management. I'm your host, David Clark, and in this episode, I'm speaking to an individual with one of the most impressive CVs or buyers that I've come across, David Kirk. David is the co-founder and partner at Baylor a technology investment company listed on the ASX. We talked to him about many of those investment companies and their prospects going forward. He also happens to be the chairman of Kathmandu Trade Me Group and is also a director of Forsyth Bar Limited, a privately owned investment company. If this wasn't impressive enough, added to this, David graduated from Oxford having read politics, economics and philosophy. He also has a medical degree from Otago University. Oh, and by the way, David also captained the All Blacks to the 1987 Rugby World Cup victory. The first victory New Zealand experienced in the Rugby World Cup, given it was the first World Cup. I think you'll find this a fascinating conversation with David as we talk primarily around Baylor but also touch on his past experiences uh, and learnings from that. Remember, this podcast is not designed, nor is it a specific recommendation of any one investment. We encourage people to listen to the disclaimer at the end of the podcast and also to seek advice prior to making any investment. Please don't forget to send me your feedback and ideas. You can email me at david.clark at codacapital.com. Enjoy the podcast. David Kirk, welcome to Inside the Road. Hi, good to be here. David, it's fantastic to have you on. I'm, I'm pretty excited. When I was doing my research on this I, uh, and, and, and to interview you, I, I came across and felt very inadequate in that <laughs> when I was looking through your CV, but then became more and more excited as I, I read through um, what you've done. I think it's fair for me to describe you as our first polymath that we've had on um, the podcast. I've listened to a lot of other podcasts that have had polymaths on. I had to go and look up what it was, and but I think you fit that description. How would you describe yourself and your background to our listeners? Um, well, varied, I think, is probably the best way to do it. But uh, I actually trained as a medical doctor after school um, and played a lot of rugby. I, I was captain of the All Blacks, and we went off to win the World Cup in 1987. Uh, and then I went to Oxford University and studied philosophy, politics, and economics, Worked for McKinsey and Company in London, so management consultant, and back to New Zealand in the Prime Minister's office as a chief policy advisor to the Prime Minister for a period, and then into a sort of a career in corporate business management, starting with a big New Zealand conglomerate, Fletcher Challenge, on the energy side, and then in, in paper, then transferred across to Australia with Fletcher Challenge paper, which was then bought, bought by a Norwegian company, so I worked for a Norwegian company and travelled to Norway pretty regularly. Uh, and then moved out of that into my f- the first of two public company CEO roles. I was the CEO of PMP Limited and and then Fairfax Media Limited. Uh, and at Fairfax, I really started to move the business into the into the digital world more strongly. We made important acquisitions that were successful, in particular Trade Me in New Zealand. Um, we bought it back in nine, uh, 2006, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and also stays, which was a really good investment. So tech, tech investments stayed at Fairfax for about three and a half years, and then left and worked with, with private equity briefly, and then um, started my own fund with a partner, Paul Wilson. The two of us co-founded Baylor Technology Investments, which is where I am today. And Baylor 
the name mm. comes from. I tried to look it up, some Spanish dancer or something. Yeah, no, it, what, comes, what, it comes from a spit. I was reading about um, bullfighting at the time. Yes. Uh, and there was a very famous bull in the 1920s, 30s in Spain that killed the, the most famous uh, matador of the, of the time. Uh, and uh, it was a small, agile, and yes. successful. Uh, and that's um, how we thought about the fund early on. Um, so uh, we just we chose that uh, as a useful name with a useful back, interesting background. Terrific. Now you're you're very humble in your background there, and I might just touch on some of those earlier points in your career before focusing most of our conversation around Bailador and the technology and what, what you're seeing going there. Um, how, how did a medical degree hold you in good stead for this corporate career you've had later in life, or has it? Yeah, I mean, I think it definitely has. I mean, I, I, I enjoyed medicine. I was, I graduated, I worked for two years in hospitals before I went to Oxford. But when I was going, went to Oxford, I made the decision not to do a medical research degree. I felt it was just such a wonderful opportunity to go such, to, to a new university, to do something I hadn't really done much of since I was about 14. That's sort of arts-related subjects, so mm -hmm. philosophy, politics, and economics. So I really f thought about my time at Oxford as time out, but going back to medicine, but then I was invited to um, um, apply to McKinsey, and I thought that sounded exciting. And I didn't really want to go back to New Zealand after only two and a half years away. Uh, it's partly because of the rugby. I think I'd sort of finished with rugby mentally, and if I'd gone back in my late twenties, I would have been back involved. So I wanted to stay away in the UK for a bit longer. And so McKinsey seemed like a great opportunity, and I guess my curiosity got the better of me, and, and that's where I went. Now I think you were twenty-six when you retired. Uh, from rugby, and I think if I'm right, you played 17 tests, 11 as captain, including the Rugby World Cup, uh, the first Rugby World Cup winning uh, team in 1987. I had to remind myself the final was actually in Eden Park, because of course as Australians we think about Serge Blanco and Concord Oval being you know, the place in 87. But do you feel that you, I think a lot of people would look back and say you retired early. How do you think about that? Well, I did retire early in the in a normal course of a rugby playing career. Mm. Even in those days when there was no money, it wasn't an actual career. It wasn't a professional occupation. Um, it was still early to leave at 26. But the main reason was I did have the, the Rhodes Scholarship to go to and I deferred it for a couple of years. And so I had to make a decision. Did I want to continue to play for the All Blacks? Yes. But um, did I want to do my Rhodes Scholarship as well? Yes. So I had to make a decision and uh, I decided that uh, for a career and just for moving on with my life, mm -hmm. definitely going out on a high after the World Cup, that um, I would go to Oxford and, and let the All Blacks go. As my kids would say, it was at one hell of a mic drop in today's <laughs> day, walking out on the top. So well done. Um, interesting, uh, just from a thinking perspective, I note that you and the now Sir John Kerwin were two of the only All Blacks to not participate in the Rebel Tour, which was what, 85, 87, somewhere around there. What led to that decision and how do you reflect upon that decision today? Yeah, 1986 it was, okay. early in 1986. Um, yes, only two players who had been previously selected to go, John Kerwin and myself, and were invited to go on the Rebel Tour, didn't go. And both of us didn't go for, um, you know, for moral reasons. We just felt it was wrong. On a couple of levels, actually. One was clearly the um, supporting of apartheid, um, which, they, you know, not necessarily the players were particularly personally supportive, but there's no doubt that the regime, the apartheid regime, wanted Rebel teams to come to show that they weren't isolated and, 
it was and, business and, as usual. Yeah, and it reduced the, the pressure on them to make changes. So it was, in that sense, supportive of the South African regime, and neither John nor I wanted to be supportive of that regime. But also, it was a, it was a there was money being paid, and that's been talked about. And I, I don't know what the what the, you know how much money people got paid and all the rest of it. But I know what was on offer, and they were offering money to players to go. Um, and that was also something you weren't allowed to take any money from rugby in those days. You got banned if you took any money. It was a strictly amateur game. And I don't want to be in a position where I had to not tell the truth about what was what was going on there. And so it was another reason not to go. And how do you reflect upon that decision? Uh, I feel really good about it. Uh, I felt you know it was a tough decision actually because when you're in a team and you're really close and tight, it's pretty hard to let your teammates down mm-hmm. and just walk away. Uh, and they did feel let down. Many of them, you know, said that to me. And they felt pretty let down and and felt like I had not um, you know supported them. Um, but uh, it was tough. But then once I'd made the decision, I've never really thought I made a mistake. <clears throat> and the players weren't really supportive. The New Zealand public was not supportive of the tour. Players were banned. There was a sort of cursory investigation, but it didn't it didn't uncover anything because it didn't look very hard. Mm. Um, which was which was fine, and we all moved on. But um, I've never I've been always been you know grateful. I didn't go and think it was absolutely the right decision. Yeah, it's interesting how you remember things. I I can clearly remember watching a VHS tape. A very good family friend, Mike Donovan, had given to us at that time of the Cavaliers tour. I can remember New Zealand clearing a ball, or the Cavaliers <clears throat> clearing a ball off their own line with a big long kick. And uh, the first time I'd ever seen a, a fellow uh, with a number tw- 10 SA jersey on pick the ball up and slot a field goal from 60 <laughs> metres out, the first time I'd seen Nas Boda. Yeah. But there, I, I remember that. So moving from there, um, and, and now you're on the board and... Uh, of a number of organisations, Katmandu um, and a few others. Do you want to tell us about your commercial interests and activities today a little bit? Yeah, sure. My main main interest and engagement um, with Paul is um, running the um, the technology investment fund we co-founded. So it's called Bailable Technology Investments. It's listed on the ASX, BTI. Mm-hmm. Um, and we invest in expansion stage which is you know, well-established, 5 to $10 million worth of revenue and tech's proven up, good customer base, good international growth starting. That's an expansion stage. Expansion stage, information technology companies, not, not biotech or anything like that, particularly information technology companies and particularly software as a service businesses and marketplace businesses. Uh, we put substantial money in, into these businesses, you know, $5 million plus. We go on the boards and we just work very closely with the management to help them grow and scale their business which most often means scaling outside Australia. They're already successful in Australia, got a leading position globally in terms of their tech and their customer solutions, but they need to take it to the world. Uh, and we've now been listed for about four and a half years. The fund is around about, uh, we've got around about 160 million of net asset value that we're managing, 10 portfolio companies. Um, and in the last financial year to 30 June, those portfolio companies had 232 million of revenue in mm-hmm. total, um, and that was growing at 30% a year, and 65% of that revenue came from outside Australia and New Zealand. So we are genuinely taking Australian tech companies to the world and, and growing them, and, they, and they're getting pretty big. So this is a we've spoken on this podcast to people doing very early stage venture capital. 
um, seed funding, angel funding, we've spoken to people doing in Israel strategies, um, and many of our clients, investors, uh, are also familiar with a lot of closed-end funds. Why a listed vehicle um, to where most are LLP sort of partnerships yeah. and uh, unitized funds where you know people are committing X amount of capital, that's pretty large, and then uh, money's being called, and then over five, eight, ten years, they're getting their money back with some sort of internal rate of return, and you have a portfolio of ten, and one or two are great, the, a few go sideways, and a few go broke type of thing. Why, why a listed vehicle? Because, of course, a listed vehicle gives exposure to people every day, but yeah. what, what, what's the rationale? Uh, a few reasons. Um, probably the most important one was uh, we felt there was, um, at the stage we we're investing, which is not early stage or startup at all, it's later stage. But nevertheless, we thought we would want to hold our investments for longer than a closed-end fund, or many of our investments, for longer than a closed-end fund would allow us to. So if you invest about year five in a closed-end fund, which is sort of towards the end of the investment period mm -hmm. in those funds, you've really only got about four years or three years before you've got to start thinking about how do I sell this? How do I get out of it? Because you've got to return the money mm -hmm. by the end of 10 years. So that was the first thing for us. We felt like it would make sense for the founders and for us and for our investors to hold investments for longer, to not be under pressure to find an ex exit. And also we felt like um, it would make sense for us to hold public company positions over time because you know, perhaps half or a third of our exits out of the fund were going to be IPOs. Uh, if we were successful, we've already had one IPO. Um, and it would make sense for us then to hold that um, in the fund as well. So basically, we've set ourselves up with a, with a more degrees of freedom, if you like, than a closed-end fund. Uh, and I suppose the third, and, and, and in some ways the most important of all, is that the, a uh, listed fund is a permanent capital structure. So when you do make a sale and you sell the whole of a company and it's all cashed out and cash comes back into the fund, you can pay some out as a dividend, and you can also reinvest some um, and continue to grow the fund. So as I say, more degrees of freedom. And we thought also, I suppose, a, forward, a fourth point, which was on our mind at the time also, was to give exposure to smaller investors, um, self-managed super investment investors, for instance, um, who couldn't put half a million dollars or, or more into a private um, fund, uh, but would be only too happy to put $20,000 or uh, $30,000 into a publicly listed fund. Uh, and they would get that same exposure as, as people in the private fund. Correct. Typically, uh, sophisticated wholesale clients, the only people are getting direct relationship to a portfolio of 10 companies like this in a, in a fund. So absolutely, I can Yeah, see it's a unique opportunity for people to have exposure to Australian and New Zealand expansion stage, growth stage, um, information technology companies going global. Uh, there's no other structure like this. Everything else is in, in private structures. Okay, and, and tell us a little bit about some of the port, those 10 portfolio companies you've got at the moment. Well, our biggest and most successful and one of our longest um, holds is a company called SiteMinder, yes. which is a um, channel manager in the hotel industry um, space. It provides the distribution services um, for hotels to allow them to connect to all the online um, sources of um demand for their rooms. So the bookings.com in the last minute yeah, it or connects, it, it connects to booking.com and Expedia and TripAdvisor and C-Trip in, in China and Agoda and there's literally hundreds of places 
people go to to find a hotel when they're mm-hmm. traveling, and something's got to connect those those websites that have got that have got the um, got the, all of the hotel inventory on them and the hotels themselves. So SiteMinder sits between a hotel uh, and connects into the hotel, and then connects into all all the Booking.coms and the Expedias and the TripAdvisors, and provides all the software, the sort of middle layer of software, which allows those connections to take place. And they've got more than three times the um, number of connections to online travel agents, and more than three times the number of connections to hotels, and more than three times the number of connections to property management systems, which are the technologies that hotels use, than any other competitor in the world. And so they're a big and successful company with well over 100 million of annual recurring revenue now, growing at around about that 30% rate. Wow. Um, big company. Um, the new chief executive actually has just recently started. Um, the, the founder, Mike Ford, has, has become the executive chairman. Um, is a guy by the name of Sankar Narayan, which I don't know if people know Sankar, but he was the COO and CFO of, of uh, Zero for quite a long okay. time. So he's got a great pedigree. Um, and he, he likes to say SiteMind is the the biggest, most successful Australian tech company that you've never heard of. And that's, uh, and that's a, not a good thing. So he's been doing a good, a good job of actually um, publicising the company a bit, a bit more. But it's private. It's held, um, it's held only in private hands. Um, but hopefully, you know, one day that, that business will come to market. More people have an opportunity to invest in it. And is the logical exit for yourselves an IPO on that or a trade sale, do you believe? I think, well, the company could definitely go either of those two ways. Uh, I think in a way I'd like to see, uh, we'd like to see, Valid would like to see it IPO'd in Australia. We think it's great to have high quality Australian companies on the public markets that allows other people to invest in it and just great for the ASX. The ASX is really keen to get really high quality listings, particularly to build up the tech listings because they're you know, relatively few. Lots of mining companies and lots of banks, mm-hmm. but um, building up tech listings and, and becoming a place where people can list is a big target for the ASX. So we're, we're happy to support that. But, you know, the business is, is clearly going to be sought after by strategic buyers as well. So we'll be open to strategic exit. And do you think <clears> about exiting, you know, if it is an IPO placement via the Australian market versus a US market where someone like Atlassian it appears to me, and tell me your thoughts, that in the Australian market, there is much more demand for quarterly earnings, where a company may, may in the technology space, be able to appease investors and have investors believe, like Amazon has, for instance, that it's much better off retaining those earnings and reinvesting in the business to capture the opportunity. I think there is a bit more focus in Australia about um, profitability which I'm not sure is a bad thing because, you know, some of the valuations that are out there now are pretty high. And so if companies aren't able to demonstrate that they can move to profitability and over time they can improve their margins as they grow, as they get economies of scale or network economies, then you do have to have a, you know, a little bit of a question mark about the underlying um, economics and growth economics of the business. So I do, don't think it's a bad thing that investors are interested in seeing that companies can be profitable. And if they choose not to be profitable by inve- investing to grow their, um, their customer base more strongly, to be more profitable in the future because they'll establish a um, stronger market position or um, you know, develop stronger network economics, then that's fine. But that's an informed decision and they can explain that clearly to investors. And, and I think investors will understand that and will support it. Valuations are strong in Australia. So I think there's no difference. If anything, Australian... Valuations for like companies 
a little bit stronger than than NASDAQ or New York Stock Exchange. And I think that's probably a bit of a scarcity premium. There aren't too many really high quality, pretty big tech companies listed in Australia. So uh, you know, a lot of the bigger funds need to get exposure to those fast growing companies. So they, did, in order to do that, they bid up the prices a bit. Um, but we think the ASX is a really good place for a tech company to list. There's now some pretty knowledgeable um, investors. There are, there's good coverage in terms of uh, analyst report writing, and there are pretty deep pools of capital in, in Australia, so you can find um, appropriate investors for appropriate companies. How are the valuations looking for yourselves in that entry-level growth capital in the technology media space? Um, how are those valuations looking compared to historical averages and how do they compare to, say, the US where, you know, for instance, we seem to have an opinion that they're very elevated at the yeah. moment? Yeah, well, I, they, I think they, they there's a bit of a, um, a divide in valuations. The sort of companies we invest in at around about that sort of 5 million plus revenue growing pretty fast but still pretty small um, and still needing lots of support and help and you know, they really need to build out their business processes and build out their their senior team and 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 understand how to go to market in, in, in Europe and how to go to market in the US, how to win new customers and what's the best way to, what channels to use and what marketing to use and so on. So lots of uncertainties. Those valuations are, are still pretty reasonable. Um, we find that people at that stage actually value the support and assistance you can give them as much as trying to get a, you know, a sort of really elevated so valuation. The, the strategic value of the investor. Strategic coming. value of the investor um, and their ability to, to, to grow them globally and then to help them with their exit in due course. So I, I think most sensible founders see, see the package of things they need from the investor, not just blindly focus on a high valuation multiple. You've got to be really careful too, because um, in, in growth of these companies, they don't sort of go in a straight line, you know, 30, 40, 50% every year. They have, you know, the odd hiccup. Um, and you don't want to be trying to raise um, money in a hiccup when you've raised at an elevated valuation and now you've got to do a down round or at, at a lower multiple. And it's, it's much better for companies to raise sensible amounts of money, not too much, at, at sensible valuations, execute on their plan, and then go to the market again for the right amount of money, um, well in advance of running out of money, obviously. Um, and just to do that steadily until they get to a stage when they're actually starting to be about break even and they can uh, grow just with retained, uh, you know, the retained earnings. So what would you see as an ideal pathway for a technology startup or a company in this area, in the Australian New Zealand market? Well, I think a little bit like what I was describing, and we'll just go into a wee bit more detail. Most of the, these startups start with um, friends and family. Friends, uh, families and fools. <laughs> yeah, some, some probably. But also then there's a reasonably well, quite well, um, and quite sophisticated uh, bunch of network of, of angel and network of angel investors in Australia, mm -hmm. uh, and there's lots of ways in which they network investors, network investors, angel investors connect with um, with startup companies, and, and they put in their hundred thousand or their fifty thousand or their or a bit more, uh, and they might follow on. So th there's a good um, opportunity to tap net angel investor um, networks, and thereafter there are a number of funds and number of sources that are. Um, accelerators and incubators, um, but also early stage venture capital. funds. Yep. Venture capital, yeah, early stage venture capital. 
And, and then you mo move on to the So, so is that early stage venture capital, you're talking sort of 1 million in for- 500. On a 300,000 value, a 3 that million sort of valuation thing. type of that thing. That sort of thing, um, or even um, 250 on a 1 million valuation. Yep. Pretty early, early-ish um, investing. Um, and uh, again, quite a bit of assistance. Um, and But those early stage venture capitalists tend to put small amounts of money into lots of companies, expecting some won't make it. Mm -hmm. um, but then expecting to follow on or, um, or or make their money, make their returns out of the few that do really well. We're quite different from that, and that's the next stage, the growth or expansion stage. If a company can fight its way through the through out of the pack and get to sort of five million of revenue and well-established customer base and growing strongly, um, with obviously a great product at that stage, um, that's when we come in, and that's when uh, I think. Uh, founders of companies should be looking for expertise as well as money. Um, the VC um, world can't really spend a lot of time with individual companies because there's a lot of them and their model requires that they put relatively small amounts of money with lots of, lots of companies. Um, we're a bit different. We put um, larger amounts of money with fewer companies and then therefore spend a lot more time with them. So I think that's the next stage if you can find the right partner who can help you grow. And generally speaking, and as we've done with many of our companies, once they get to the sort of $10 million worth of um, revenue, still growing really fast, we'll bring in an international investor. And often that'll be a US-based investor. Could be from the West Coast, could be the East Coast. Um, and that'll be the, a particular investor that really understands the technologies, um, has experience, can, has good US connections, has pretty deep pockets so they can follow on again. Um, and then you're sort of on the way. And we did that with SiteMinder, with TCV, big fund out of the west coast of the US. And initially they put in 30 million and they followed up with another 20 million and they've done another 10 million after that. So um, that's the journey a really big company um, grows through. And then you get to a point where they don't need, need much more money because they're, they're profitable and it's just a question whether you want to become more profitable quickly or you want to grow faster by just maintaining profitability, sort of bouncing around about the, uh, the um, you know, break-even mark. When you invest your five million, what type of percentage of a company or what amount of equity do you typically walk away with? Typically, we would invest between we would have sort of between ten and tw low twenties um, percentage for that for for five million dollars. But yeah. sometimes we invest a bit more and sometimes a little bit but less. So, but typically we end up um, particularly if there's, if, there's, if there's another later round or something like that, so we might get a little bit diluted. We'll be in the high teens. That's typically a position. So we've got plenty of plenty of skin in the game. Um, plenty of reason to spend lots of time and effort in helping the company, um, but not so much that we can't build a portfolio. We're not sort of totally, you know, not super exposed to just a few companies. And at the moment, how much capital does Bailador have looking for a home? Not a lot, actually. That's one of the things that we've um, we've been in a mode for the last year or so of really focusing on the portfolio. We've raised money a couple of times on the ASX. Um, and we've been well supported. And the idea of, of raising that money has been to go out and invest it and to build a portfolio. Mm -hmm. So that's what we've done. And for the last year, we've been very focused on growing that portfolio, doing well with it, and moving the companies towards exit. Um, and we're now hard on focused on at least a couple of companies, which we'd love to um, um, say we'll exit before the end of this calendar year. And, we, and we're hopeful that we will, but we all, we all know it's hard to predict just exactly when when transactions happen, but the time has come for us to demonstrate uh, that we can exit for good multiples, um, bring cash back into the portfolio, 
make some distributions and reinvest and go from there. So um, within the next uh, four or five months, we hope to be, have concluded that, um, and then we'll have more capital to invest, but we'll have also probably made a distribution to shareholders. And David, what areas of the market in the technology from an industry perspective get you excited? And then what, as a follow-up to yeah. that, what do you think Australian New Zealand companies are particularly good at? Uh, well, I think that those two questions, are, the, the answers to those two questions overlap a bit, actually. What we're excited about are software as a service businesses and businesses in, that are attacking big markets mm-hmm. um, and obviously ones with great products that they've they've got to market early and they've been successful in, in, in building a, a critical mass of customers. That's what we look for. So software as a service is a business we know really well. We love the high gross margins, the high percentage of recurring revenue, and we love the, the um, profitable growth economics. So as businesses grow bigger, when they've got um, subscription revenue, which is repeating revenue, and you don't have to you know, win, re-win that customer the next year, they, you just, they just can keep rolling on for six, seven, eight, nine, ten years. Um, it's actually very profitable. You retain a lot of cash from those customers. So that's great. We, we love those sort of um, businesses, and we've probably five or six of the, of the companies in our portfolio of software as a service businesses. Um, we also like marketplace businesses and the sort of the, the, the classic marketplace business like an, e, an eBay or a trade being in New Zealand, there aren't so many of those around anymore. Um, they have, you know, those big models that aggregate lots of different products have been taken up. But we're seeing marketplaces, marketplace businesses as, as subsets of other businesses. For instance, for instance Straker Translations which is a business we listed on the ASX in October last year. It's done really well. Is a language translation marketplace, if you like. It all happens on one um, um, platform, um, which they've built. Uh, and if I want to get something um, translated from English into Swahili, I would upload it onto the onto the platform. Straker would then do a machine translation using their um, proprietary um, uh, machine learning um, tool. Uh, and then they would um, crowdsource translators from all around the world to um, you know, just check the translation to fix up the things that the machine hadn't got right because the machine's in good directionally but not great on detailed context. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then it would be concluded. And generally speaking, that would be turned around in 48 hours and it would be you know, very cost-effective for the person looking for the translation. So there, there's a marketplace of lots of people looking for translation services and lots of translators, which is mediated by a um, by an online um, platform or, or sort of process um, management uh, platform, uh, in, in the guise of Straker Translations. Now, one of the things we've tended to see with technology is it tends to be a winner takes all. Whereas, past sort of economic growth period, you may have had four or five manu- manufacturing companies making pipes or railways or whatever it is, and they could all live side by side. Um, there seems to be in the technology area demonstrable benefits for um, a much more consolidated marketplace. You see it with people like Facebook, etc., where you know you, you you can be second and or you can be third or fourth, but you've really got no business. Yeah. Uh, where the one? How, how do you deal with that or think about that? Well, I think um, there are a group of probably four major um, online consumer-facing global platforms, and that's Apple and Alphabet, Google, um, Amazon, and Facebook. And each of them have got different engagement um, 
approaches or ways of engaging with consumers, but when and, you know, Facebook's social media, Google's search, Apple is the device in the first um, instance, um, and Amazon is um, you know, transaction services. Um, so each, each have different ways of, of grabbing our time and our, and, and, and our money. Um, but what they do is they, they, they get you, they, through that engagement um, approach, they, they then have you in, inside a kind of a, a platform or, um, ecosystem where they're able to sell you a whole lot of different things or to monetize your data or monetize your eyeballs um, as um, Google and, and uh, Facebook do through advertising in particular. So those big global platforms, because they are using the internet, which is um, everywhere, uh, and they're using um, entirely sort of um, globally um, globally used um, services such as social media services, um, they can become you know, global platforms. Um, of course, there are Chinese platforms that um, are outside that uh, sort of Western paradigm, but that's not the case for. Um, non-consumer-facing um, technology, uh, generally speaking. There are obviously biggest and most successful companies in those spaces. SiteMind is the most successful um, provider of um, distribution and other services to hotels, connecting them to online travel agents. But it's not the only one in the world. It's, it's much the biggest and it's the most successful. And it is because it's got the best products and it's got it got to market first. But there are other... other um, there's not the sort of global platform in those circumstances. So software as a service, as a software product sold to a, in, in a business-to-business um, context is not subject to the same sort of platform economics. How is Australia doing it, providing an infrastructure, an ecosystem to ensure that we develop these type of uh, companies? I think doing pretty well. Uh, I think um, you know, the superannuation system is a big help in terms of... Um, Aggregating capital that can then be distributed in lots of different ways. I think um, both cities, large cities, and state governments and the federal government have been helpful in in relatively small ways, but but helpful ways in seeding um, in, in seeding a startup ecosystem, uh, which includes in incubators and, and accelerators and so on. I think large companies have, have contributed to that as well. Uh, I think. Um, taxation system is about right for it. I don't think we need a whole lot more tax incentives to get enough money invested in this type of space. You know, lots of people will say we do and they'll put their hand out for it, but I don't really, if you look at it, there's plenty of capital being invested. Um, and you know, a lot of businesses aren't going to succeed in this space, so you don't want to you know, tax incentivize too much investment in businesses that um, are never going to succeed. But um, So I think that's not too bad. I think the R&D rebate is really important. And as a public, uh, as a federal government public policy lever, for all of our companies, it's just as when they're at a certain stage, it's really helpful for them, helpful to them to have to be getting back a lot of their investment in research and development, and a lot of their time is spent in building product that will in the future be you know create a lot of um, custom, create a great customer base, will create jobs will create um, profits uh, and that can be redistributed. So the R&D is a genuine rebate, is a genuine investment in future success for Australian companies. So I think Australia does a pretty good job. David, change your tack a little bit and <laughs> circling back more to the structure of the fund. One of, I'm not sure if you'd term yourself a listed investment company, but one of the things that strikes many people in the markets that quite often they will trade at a discount to their 
uh, net tangible assets of that business. H has that been the case with Bailador? And if so, how do you deal with that or think about that? Yeah, um, I, I guess we are a listed investment company, but we're not a listed investment company in the traditional, in, in the traditional sense that we all think of them, which is um, funds which invest in other listed companies. Yes. And so to trade at a discount to a fund that's listed to, to the sum of the companies that you're invested in doesn't make a lot of sense. So it is an unusual thing and it would be a frustrating thing for the managers of, managers of those funds. We don't think we should trade it. We, do, we have traded at a discount. Um, we don't think we should trade at a discount and we don't think we will in the long term um, because um, we tra we're, we're investing not in other listed companies but in other, other private companies. But the, but the onus is on us to show that, that the valuations that we're holding our companies at um, are conservative um, and that when we exit companies or raise new new money for companies, then that money will come in, in at a higher valuation. And that actually is what's what's happening. We've had 18 third-party investments into our, into I think most of our, ten um, investments, yeah, 10, yeah. 10 investments. I'm not sure all of them have taken a third-party one, but um, of, of all the ones that have taken a third-party investment, there's been 18 altogether, and every single one of those has been at or above our holding value. We've never had a down round in four and a half years. Of, of a listed company. And we and that's very purposeful for us. It makes a lot of sense for us to hold our investments conservatively and then to be able to consistently de deliver good news when there's an, a new investment or a, or a sell down or, or, or a full exit. Um, so you know, we, we, we think um, that makes a lot of sense. The other thing I would say though, when you think about a discount for, for a portfolio such as ours, um, you know, shares in a portfolio of private information technology companies, if you went to a private fund that was holding the same sort of portfolio, you would not get your money out. You can, firstly, you can't get your money out, generally speaking, that they're, they're closed. You can't ask them to cash you out. Um, but secondly, if, if there was a way of getting out by them selling your interest to someone else, you can bet it would be a, at a very significant discount. So in fact, I, my guess is out the discount we trade at is less than a comparable private company would, would cash people out of, um, and I, but I also think we're going to, over time, eliminate, eliminate that discount as we demonstrate. We can get great exits consistently at um, premium to what we're holding the companies at. And do you have a methodology for revaluing what you're holding those companies at, and, and what is that? <clears throat> yeah, we do. We only change the valuation of companies on a third-party cash event. So if someone invests new money into the company, at a higher valuation, that'll set a new um, a new valuation that we hold it at. Similarly, if someone in the company um, cashes out um, without there being new money going into the company, that's a third-party event, which allows you to set a new valuation because it's an arm's-length market-to-market transaction. But if, the, if we run a whole year with a portfolio company, 12 months, without any um, resetting of the valuation, without any third-party um, event, then we really do have to look at the... Um, company and say, well, you know, has this gone up or down in value? Because we're a public company and we, we try to hold our, um, our companies conservatively, but at, but at a, at a sort of fair valuation. So in, in, that, in that instance, we'll look at all sorts of um, data that we can to, to figure out, you know, what the valuation should be, which really then boils down to what's an appropriate revenue multiple, if, assuming they're not making a lot of money as they're growing fast, what's an appropriate revenue multiple for the revenue that the company has. Um, 
We, we don't have to do this, but we do do it because we think it's good practice. Every year, um, in association with our annual accounts, we have an independent third-party expert valuer come and look at the whole portfolio and give us a valuation of every company in the portfolio and the portfolio as a whole. And that also guides us um, uh, on where we should be holding our companies, um, what valuations we should be holding them at. David, are there any areas that you look at around technology or see other growth funds or even venture funds investing into in the technology space that you just shake your head and think, not in a million years would we go near that? Well, we're not um, and never have been, although we made one small investment, um, which we're happy with, um, but it's only small and we probably won't do much more. We've never been big e-commerce investors because we think it's just it's just a tough business. It's very competitive with other e-commerce providers. Um, if you're a pure true e-commerce rather than a marketplace, you do actually have to buy and hold the stock. So you've got physical um, stock. And a lot of e-commerce doesn't have much in the way of superior um, economics to, um, to general retail. I mean, it doesn't have the bricks and mortar stores, but it still has the, the stock. And, and it probably, particularly for its size, these companies, online e-commerce com companies, do have to invest a lot in marketing. And marketing is becoming to gain, gain customers and to build their brand and to, and to you know, generate leads for people who will buy the product. And um, you know, marketing is becoming pretty expensive. If you want to buy Google um, AdWords, um, you've really got to pay up for them these days because a lot of people are competing for them. Um, and you know, Facebook's pretty expensive as well. And if you want to get real cut through these days, you've got to have quite sophisticated um, ads. And that means often video that's more expensive to build and to to load and to list. So I just, I just feel as we just feel as if the economics of e-commerce is much tougher. Um, we we recognise there are going to be some screaming winners, and that's great, uh, and that's fantastic. But just generally speaking, that's not not a, not an area we've been particularly focused on. Well, David, thank you for your time. Is there any last thought you'd like to leave our listeners with before we conclude the podcast? Um, no, just to say that um, I've I've done a lot of things in my working life, and I am really enjoying what I'm doing now. I really enjoy the fact that I'm working with young, usually youngish people, often in their thirties. Um, who are hugely motivated, founded their own business, um, succeeding, doing well, open to <coughs> excuse me, open to advice, enjoying working with, um, who enjoy working with us, and it's wonderful to succeed together. It's just a, it's a, it's a great, um, it's a great job, and I'm enjoying it. Terrific, David. Thank you very much for coming on Inside the Rope. You're welcome. Thank you for listening to Inside the Rope with David Clark. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. You can connect with David by visiting codacapital.com. Any views expressed in this recording represent the personal opinions of the speaker and do not represent the view of any other party. If this recording contains reference to any financial products, that reference does not constitute advice or recommendation and may not be relied upon. Listeners in Australia are encouraged to visit www.moneysmart.gov.au to obtain information regarding financial advice and investments.